So how do you write a book that people are already dying to read? If you are a first-time author, you will find the answer in one word, genre. In general, readers like the books, like the books they already like. Romance readers rarely go into the horror section of the bookstore. If you're trying to write a romance novel for people who hate romance or a sci-fi movie for people who hate sci-fi, you're doing it wrong. Books are divided into genres and subgenres and sub-sub-subgenres for a reason. Readers want to know what kind of book they're buying. They want to know if this book is like the books they already like. And each genre has its own rules. It has its own audience. And when you pick a genre, you don't realize it, but you're also picking your readers. No one wants to read a romance novel where the guy and the girl never get together in the end, or an epic fantasy where the dragon defeats the young hero and everything ends sad. They don't want to buy a mystery. They already know who done it, and they don't want to buy a thriller that's boring. So when readers buy a book, they have certain expectations for what kind of story they're going to be reading, and the genre of the book communicates those expectations. But how do you make sure you're writing the book that readers of that genre are already dying to read? How do you know if you're fitting those genre expectations? Because obviously I'm sharing examples from big genres, but in reality, there's not five or six genres. There are thousands of genres. We'll find out in this episode of The Christian Publishing Show, the podcast for writers who want to honor God through excellent writing. We have a guest today who's going to give us a tour of the genres in fiction. She's a multi-published author. She runs her own editing business while editing for Iron Stream Media and teaching writing and editing classes. She writes helpful fiction with a healthy dose of romance. Karen Berry, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you so much for having me. So from your perspective, why is genre important? Genre is important because really it's a promise to the readers. So when you say that you're writing in a specific genre, you are promising the reader this book is going to contain certain elements. The characters will be different. The settings will be different. The circumstances will be. But there are specific requirements that will be met. And the same way if you tell someone, I'll be there at 7 o'clock and you don't show up until 8 o'clock, they're going to be really annoyed. So if you tell someone that you're writing a romance and you're not writing a romance, they're going to be really annoyed. That's right. And let's start with romance because I feel like this is one of those genres where People often say they're writing a romance when in reality they're writing something else with a romantic theme. So what's the difference between a mystery where the private eye falls in love with a damsel in distress and an actual romance book? The actual romance novel has to center around the boy and girl coming together. That is the whole point of the story. Now, there are going to be things that happen that force them together and pull them apart. They're going to have doubts and questions and conflicts. But you need to have a boy who meets a girl. Whether or not they're looking for love at the end of the book, they need to fall in love. Sometimes, depending on the publisher you're writing for, they may require a marriage proposal or a wedding at the end of the book. That's not always the case anymore. These days, they call it the satisfactory ending that's good enough, where we know that they're committed to each other. But if you've written a mystery, and if you can take that romance out and you still have a really good mystery, then you've written a mystery. You haven't written a romance. 
And a lot of people like to jump on romance because it's the best-selling genre. It sells a ton. And even during lockdowns and recessions and depressions, romance novels sell. So I've seen people slap that on there just because, well, if I can get it listed on Amazon as a romance, people will pick it up. But then, like we said, they're just going to pick it up and they're going to be annoyed because you haven't given them a romance novel. So the importance is, if I take that romance out, do I still have a story? If you do still have a story, then you're writing something with romance in it. If you take the romance out and you've just got people floating around on a page, then you've got a romance novel. So let's go to mystery next. What makes a mystery a mystery, right? Because you can put mysterious elements into any genre. So what makes a mystery uniquely a mystery book? In this one, I will just to preface, this is not my strength. I focus in specific genres. I know enough about mystery to talk about the genre, but if you want some more detail, there are some great resources out there. Essentially, the mystery is there's either a crime or a murder. There's a question that needs to be answered. And usually that's going to happen within the first chapter. Whether it's a detective or it's the cozy mystery where you've got the baker who comes into her bakery early in the morning and there's a dead body there. It happens very early in the book. And the rest of the story is spent trying to figure out who the bad guy is. If we already know who the bad guy is, it's not a mystery. If it's the story of a woman opening a bakery and maybe a couple of things go wrong here and there, and at the end of the book you find out that she's got faulty wiring, that's not a mystery. That's the story of a woman opening a bakery and there's something unusual happening. So there really needs to be that question that needs to be answered, whether it's a kidnapping or the murder or a theft, something like that early on. And then you want your reader to try to figure out the answer before the hero does. The mystery is kind of an interesting genre because it's kind of like a crossword puzzle in that it's interactive with the reader in a somewhat unique way where mystery readers are wanting to participate in the mystery and guess who done it. My wife's really into Agatha Christie and she'll occasionally read them out loud and and we'll listen to them together instead of listening to an audiobook. And we do this because it's fun. She'll pause reading the book and we'll discuss who we think did it. Right? We'll have a discussion and a, a debate over who has the motive and all, and all the things. And it, it's a very unique genre in that way. And on Amazon, it's interesting because mystery, thriller, and suspense are all clustered together. So on Amazon, that category actually outsells romance, but it cheats because it's got three, <laughs> three different genres that are very different. So thriller, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. One of the things that's different between a mystery and a thriller is a thriller, often you know who done it, and they keep doing it, right? You've got, you know, Jack the Ripper is going in every chapter, he's killing somebody new, and they're trying to stop him. But you might have some shots from Jack the Ripper's perspective. There's less of a mysterious element and more of an action, more combat, where mystery can go all the way to cozy mystery, where it's like somebody dies in the first paragraph, and then no violence happens for the rest of the book until somebody's arrested on the last page. Exactly. So what are some of the other differences between mystery and thriller? Well, really, the way to look at that category is going to be that the hero is working against a clock, some type of clock. It's either we know that the world is going to end in 48 hours, so that's what we have to beat. So they may or may not know who the bad guy is, but really, that's what their goal is. 
Or it could be, like you said, Jack the Ripper. It's not a specific deadline of we've got 48 hours. It's just we want to stop him before he murders someone else. So they're working to be some sort of either metaphorical or real clock. And again, yeah, they could know who the bad guy is. They might not. That's not the important part. The important part is stopping whatever the bad situation is. Whereas, yeah, that mystery, it's clues. It's can you figure it out? Thriller, suspense, you don't have to figure it out. You just want to know if they're going to beat the clock. And normally they do. Mystery is a treasure hunt. Thriller is a roller coaster. Oh, that's a great description. I like that. With Thriller, there's no participation. Your participation is holding on for dear life. (laughs) And so it's less interactive in that way. I remember there was a genre that was popular when I was a kid called Choose Your Own Adventure, where you would get to a page and it's like, if you do this, go to page six. And if you do this, go to page 42. And I really enjoyed those as a 12, 13-year-old. And those are in some ways more like a mystery than they are like anything else. So we talked about the difference between mystery and thriller. Now let's talk about the difference between sci-fi and fantasy. And there's a lot of different ways to differentiate sci-fi and fantasy. A lot of people kind of superficially, they're like, oh, well, sci-fi is in the future and fantasy is in the past. But I heard one person explain it this way, and I thought this was really good, that sci-fi often has ambiguous morality. You have different alien races, and they have kind of pros and cons. You kind of can see it from both of their perspectives. And there's often this real political element. Sometimes sci-fi, especially older sci-fi, really focused on asking the question, what would happen if this technology developed, right? What what are the political and moral and sociological ramifications of technology moving in this direction? Whereas fantasy tends to have very clear morality, where there's the good guys, they're clearly good, and the bad guys who are clearly bad, which is interesting because often famous, quote, sci-fi stories are really fantasy stories at their heart. So, for example, Star Wars is a story with knights and wizards and very clear morality. In many ways, it's really a fantasy story in space, whereas other stories may be a sci-fi story, but they take place a long time ago. Brandon Sanderson's stories often are this way. So, from your perspective, what's the difference between fantasy and sci-fi other than the obvious, right? If it's got a sword and dirt, it's fantasy. And if it's got a spaceship, it's sci-fi. Well, see, that's interesting because I've actually never heard that morality argument. For me, the distinguishing characteristic has always been if it's a magical element or a technological element. Even, and I know this isn't a Christian book, this is a movie that came out many years ago, Cowboys and Aliens very much to me is sci-fi because you're looking at the aliens and the technology, things like that, where stories like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien are fantasy. They've got that magical element. And that's how I've always categorized the two. And that's how I've differentiated them. And it's funny because Star Wars to me has always been the one that's kind of the oddball out because you've got that magical element of the force, but you've it's very heavy in the technology. So that's how I've always interpreted it. And that's how I've always kind of guided my authors, not so much on the theme as it is the element that makes it speculative. Is it speculative magical or is it speculative technologically? And that's the distinguishing characteristic I've always used. Yeah. So if you talk, I've talked with some scientists about this and there's actually in sci-fi a distinguishing along those exact lines. And that's between what's called hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi. Cause almost all sci-fi has some magic. It's one 
fan explained to me faster than light travel is impossible with physics. Really? You, we have some theories on ways that it might work, but it starts breaking like time and it gets really complicated and we don't really know if it works and it creates all these time paradoxes if it could happen because time and light are linked because of Einstein's theory of relativity. And so any sci-fi that has a warp drive or wormholes that take you somewhere else really quickly, that's the magic part. So the question is how much more magic do they have? They have magical creatures, aliens that can telepathically get in your head and it scales up from there. Whereas you also have hard sci-fi. So like the Martians, classic example, no faster than light travel. Mm -hmm. They're traveling to Mars. Everything that's happening can happen with our physics. So it's like, how fast and loose are you playing with with the laws of physics? <laughs> and see, I think I, I would kind of err on the side of most people aren't going to understand that about the physics of things. They're just going to see the spaceships and the fancy computers and things like that. So I don't know enough about physics that I would understand that aspect of it. I would think, well, maybe someday I can still dream. Well, this is actually a perfect example because in sci-fi, there's there are subgenres of sci-fi that are by scientists for scientists, right? They really lean into the science part of science fiction, whereas there are other subgenres that are what are called space operas, right? There's just Star Wars. Star Wars doesn't get into the mumbo jumbo. Star Trek pretends to get into the mumbo jumbo and they will put in a bunch of mumbo jumbo, but it's actual mumbo jumbo, right? They're reversing the polarity and running level four diagnostics and phrases that don't mean anything. But for a non-technical person, they sound like they mean something. And, and so when you're picking sci-fi is probably a really good example of this. You need to pick an audience you can write to with authority <laughs> because if you are not a scientific person mm-hmm. and you're trying to write hard sci-fi, you're going to get into trouble very easily. You're going to need to have some actual scientists who will push up their glasses and say, well, actually, that's not how the science works <laughs> and, and keep you clear on that. And so speaking of science fiction and fantasy, let's go to the next genre, which I'm going to just say is superhero genre. Because so, I think this illustrates a good point between the different kinds of genres. You have aesthetic genres, which is kind of how the genre looks. So sci-fi is in space. Fantasy is back in the day. Superhero has a real specific look to it. And yet the success of the Marvel stories is that they have realized that they can take the look of a story, superheroes, and start telling other kinds of stories in that. You'll have a superhero movie where the whole thing is a mystery, trying to figure out who is the secret organization behind S.H.I.E.L.D. It's a spy movie, really, or you'll have a heist uh, where the whole movie is a heist. They have the beginning where they lay out the plan, right? It follows all of the genre elements of a heist, elemental genres, elements of a heist, except it's superheroes who are doing the heist and they're doing it in superhero ways. And so it's important when you're mixing genres to know how you're doing that because it can get you into trouble. So talk a little bit about mixing genres and how do you do that? When does it work and when does it not work? Well, I think to really be a mix of two genres, you have to honor the requirements of each. So if you're going to really write romantic suspense, there has to be as equally strong of a suspense storyline as there is a romance storyline. If you just happen to have the heroine fall in love with the U.S. Marshal who's guarding her, that's a suspense with some romance in it. But if you don't see that romantic conflict throughout the story then the romance readers who picked it up because you told them it was going to be romance will be very disappointed. But if you just want to write 
a mystery and you want to have a little bit of romance in there, you might have a mystery where the main characters are already married. So there might be a kiss here or there. They might confess their love to each other, but that's not really the point. So you're just going to call that one a mystery. And you might say it's a mystery with some romance in it. It's like the fiction that I write. I call it hopeful fiction with a healthy dose of romance. I've written some that are straight romance, but I the first one I wrote really is women's fiction with romance in it. So if you take the romance out, you've still got a story, but I do honor a lot of the romance genre's requirements. So just know if you want to write the historic thriller, you have to honor the thriller requirements. But that means, too, your history has got to be spot on because anyone who loves historicals who picks up your book, they are going to notice if someone is using a 20th century phrase in 18th century Britain. Like, they're just going to latch onto that and they're going to lose confidence in you as a historical writer. So any subgenre, it just really, you have to honor both promises. It's very difficult to do it well. And a lot of people are like, oh, if I mix genres, they get twice the potential audience. Obviously, I'd want to do this. And it's like, no, you give yourself twice the mistakes to make and twice the group of people to irritate. And people don't want to read the second most interesting book to them right now. They want to read the most interesting book for them right now. So if you want them to buy your book, if you want them to pick it up off the nightstand and actually read it, it's got to grab them. It's got to be the best, which means the more genres you tack on, the more places where you have to be the best if you want to grab their attention. I've had authors who have written stories and it's romantic suspense with a uh, speculative element. Oh, well, that way I can tap into the romance, the suspense, and the speculative audience. Like, no, you're going to tap into the people who only like to read all three of those. So you're not tripling your audience. You're actually cutting it down. And the more genres you add, the smaller your audience. So I like to encourage people, focus on one genre, unless you are sincerely writing historical romance, very popular genre. Just make sure that you're as historically accurate as you are honoring the romance. But otherwise, yeah, keep it as simple as you can in those early books, because it's going to be a lot easier to write to one audience than trying to appeal to five or six at the same time. Because those elements that you're adding irritate certain readers. My mother-in-law has no tolerance for anything speculative. She won't watch a superhero movie or sci-fi or fantasy. Anything that's weird and doesn't follow like the natural laws, she can't suspend any disbelief and she just finds it really boring. She's like, why would anybody <laughs> watch this? So you're writing a book for her and she's tracking along and then you add your speculative element and she's like, well, that's not, that's impossible. And she bounces right out of the book. And I imagine there's a lot of romance readers who are like that. And sure, there are some people who are really into vampire romance, and there's a, a micro niche of those readers. But if you're going to do that, you got to really read the other vampire romance books. <laughs> you got to be really familiar with that genre because yeah. it has its own rules, its own tropes, and its own reader expectations. Well, and it's really important because you don't ever want to disappoint your audience, but you don't want to startle them either. So I recently was reading a general market book and I thought it was 
pitched as kind of this women's fiction, women's empowerment kind of a book. I was curious, picked it up. About three quarters of the way through, I find out it's about witchcraft. (laughs) I, I was so shocked. And at that point, I just completely lost respect for the book and for the publisher. I never finished it. I put it down. I'm like, I'm kind of curious about how it ends. But, and I love speculative fiction. I love fantasy and sci-fi. I've seen most of the Marvel movies. But man, I was not prepared for it. It completely disappointed me. And I probably won't read anything by that author again, because I don't know what she's actually writing. We all have a bunch of books on our shelves that we're going to get around to reading sometime. When you're picking a book to read, it's because you're in a certain mood and you're wanting a certain kind of story at that time. Kind of like when you're picking a meal, right? You're at IHOP and you're like, I'm in the mood for pancakes. And IHOP brings you out a hamburger. You're like, I like hamburgers, but I'm not in a mood for a hamburger right now. And when you sneak a genre into another genre, it's like bringing the reader a hamburger when they're not in a mood for a hamburger and violating that trust. And and so it's very important to honor that. And one of the ways that you signal that is with the cover. If she had put a witch on the cover and be like, oh, this is a book about witches becoming empowered with magical power, then you wouldn't have felt betrayed. And if you were in a mood for an empowered witch who's using her magical powers to be a more self-identified person or whatever, you may have read the book and you would have enjoyed it because you had braced yourself. Oh, this is going to be pancakes instead of, oh, this is going to be a hamburger. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the more visceral genres. So horror is unique in that people are reading it because they're wanting a physical reaction to the book, right? They're wanting the book to actually make them feel afraid. So how do you how do you do that? How do you work that in to a story? I don't read horror and I have not studied that genre at all. And when authors come to me and ask for help with a horror genre, the first thing I do is offer to help them find an editor who works in that. I'm one of those people where if I read something scary or see something scary, it will stay with me for the rest of my life. So I still remember scary TV shows that I saw when I was in elementary school. So I have to avoid them at all occasions. So I don't have much to offer in that genre. I'm sorry. So I will say one difference between horror and thriller is where the agency is and how much of the bad guys you see. So often in horror, you don't really, in in film, you don't really see the bad guys, the scary things very much. Because the more you see them, the less scary they become. And so it's the threat, that impending doom. It's knowing that the bad guy is somewhere outside of the cabin trying to come in. And normally you want your protagonist protagonist moving the plot forward. But in horror, while the protagonist is still moving the plot forward, they're doing it in a very different way. They're trying to escape. They're trying to get to safety. And it's the evil, whatever the evil is in your horror, that is really moving the plot forward. It's very different in that way. You're playing with some of those core ingredients of what makes a story work. And I will say in the Christian market, there isn't really Christian horror that's not really a thing that exists. Some Christian supernatural borders on horror where they'll get into it a little bit, but it's a unique and very different genre and not a very popular one in our market. So I feel like I should have been taking notes right there. Like I, I want, want to ask you to go back and say that again. So at least in the future, I can let authors and clients know about that. Like I said, it's just not anything that I work in, but. So let me use this metaphor because I think it explains it really well. The The video game Doom is not a horror game. And you're like, how is that possible? It is got demons and blood and monsters and 
it's visually very scary. And it's like, yes, but if you play Doom, those demons are more afraid of you than you're afraid of them. <laughs> you're going around with a shotgun and you're blowing up the demons. You're the scary thing, really, in the universe with your you're the righteous wrath of God against hell, basically, is the premise of the game. As opposed to another popular video game, Five Nights at Freddy's, where you're a security guard at Chuck E. Cheese and the animatronic creatures come to life and you're hiding from them. And if you turn the wrong way, they'll jump out at you and, and eat you, right? So you are just trying to survive your Five Nights at Freddy's without getting eaten by Chuck E. Cheese and his scary guitar-playing creatures. And you are not the protagonist in the same way. It's not like you're going around destroying the things and they're running away from you. It, it's very much they have the initiative. Maybe a better word is initiative, which is a military term. Who's responding to who? And we, as Christians, don't like it when we don't have the initiative. And theologically, it doesn't really make sense, right? Because we're supposed to stand against the enemy, right? Do, do whatever you do, stand and attack, right? The only thing we're supposed to flee is temptation. So, and temptation isn't a good horror creature. It's too nebulous. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that may be why horror struggles in the Christian market, because it has a fundamental theological flaw in that that's not really the way that you handle the enemy, right? If you, you handle it more like doom, right? You're the righteous hand of God <laughs> and the demon's supposed to be afraid of you because you have Christ in you. You're not supposed to be afraid of them because right, you're we're on the winning side and we're the ones with the actual power thanks to the blood of Christ. But we're getting a little off topic here. <laughs> so we've skimmed over a lot of the big genres, but now I want to talk about subgenres. And let's go back to romance. Walk us through the different kinds of romance subgenres and how are they different from each other. You know, really right now when you're looking at the romance subgenres, the big ones are going to be romantic suspense and historical romance, especially within the Christian market. You've got the love-inspired romantic suspense line. There's a lot of historical romance uh, opportunities out there. And again, the big thing is just being honest and making sure that you're honoring both genres. So you want to make sure that that suspense is as important as the romance. It can't just be two people who are kind of attracted to each other. It makes me think of the movie Speed that came out in the 90s, where it's all about this boss and this driving and this speed. And at the end of the movie, they're like, guy and the girl are like, oh, hey, we survived this thing. You're kind of attractive. And they kiss. But that's not a plot line. <laughs> Ah, the classic 90s movie ending. They all end with a kiss. <laughs> yes, it's just kind of like, hey, we survived. The bus didn't blow up. But yeah, it's just that doesn't honor romantic suspense. That's just the kiss happens. Good romantic suspense. There is that development of the relationship and the suspense. And Terry Blackstock does that very well. There is no good place to set down a Terry Blackstock book because it just goes from one suspenseful element to the next to the next. Or all of a sudden now the boy and girl are starting to realize their feelings. Like she just does a beautiful job of layering suspense on top of romance. So if you're not reading the next chapter to find out whether or not the good guys are catching the bad guys. You're reading to the next chapter to find out if they're going to profess their feelings to each other. So it's just beautifully done. And then in the historical romance, which is the next big one, 
it's you know, when you pick up a good historical romance, you are pulled right into the time period and the location. You're not going to have characters talking about social justice in 1900 Britain. It just wasn't a thing. They're going to be speaking appropriately. All of the characters know where they belong. And it sounds horrible to say that, but the women had very specific roles. And there are always stories of women who really stepped outside of societal norms or family norms and made an impact. But when you start to see women who are doing everything on their own with no help from anyone and they're on the prairie in the 1850s, it's a little suspect. So the really good historical romance, a lot of them actually are based on a specific event. So they're based on the Kansas land run, or they're based around an episode or something specific from a world war. It's not just World War One. There's a specific element of that. And you can go and do the research and find all of those elements someplace in a history book. But there's also that great romance. Women's fiction, which gets confused with romance all the time, because generally in romance, your main character is the female. Women's fiction does not have to have a romantic ending. It doesn't even have to have a romance in it. It is an emphasis on the female character arc. It's the emphasis on how the female character changes. Sometimes that will include romance. It doesn't necessarily have to. So when you get to the end of women's fiction, there may not be a profession of love. There may not be an engagement. But if the female character has had a revelation and is walking in a new place, it's a good women's fiction book. But if you want it to be romantic women's fiction, then when you get to the end of that book, there better be something to let the reader know that the boy and girl have decided that this is it. They found their soulmate. And also know what your readers are wanting. Because another good example of Mm -hmm. this, Tom Clancy, in one of his books, I want to say it was Some of All Fears, has a 20-page section in the middle of the book where one character explains to another character exactly how to make a nuclear bomb in, like, exquisite technical detail. And most people who are not readers of Tom Clancy books are like, you got to edit that out. Nobody wants to read 20 pages of how a nuclear bomb works and how to build one. Or the reaction is, isn't that illegal? (laughs) You shouldn't be telling people how to make a nuclear bomb. (laughs) It's like, well, okay. First off, the secret of a nuclear bomb is not how to build the bomb. Because you can do it in 20 pages in a novel. The secret is how to make radioactive uranium. That's the secret. (laughs) So the book doesn't say how to make radioactive uranium and the knowing and the doing are very different. But for his readers, especially when he's writing in the 80s, how a nuclear bomb works is a great mystery. There was no internet where you could just how does a nuclear bomb, how does, how, how do the physics work? And so for him, he did the research, he got the people and he put it in his book. And for his readers, that was their favorite part. I remember a friend of mine in high school, basically summarizing, not all the exciting parts of the book, but the 20 pages on how did the nuclear bomb work? That was his favorite part. And <laughs> he broke it down and how the explosions trigger other explosions and how it has to happen all simultaneously. And it's really very fascinating, but only fascinating for a certain kind of reader. I tell you what, when I review those books, I don't, criticize that because I know that the readers, the primary readers of that genre are going to love it. And I've read several young adult books and reviewed those. I'm not the target audience. So there are parts that are a little boring to me, but I know that if my 10-year-old nephew was reading them, he would eat it up. So 
I don't leave bad reviews for these authors. I try to remember I am not the target audience for this book. I am not the target audience for Tom Clancy. So if it's going to bore me, I will let you know ahead of time. (laughs) But it's very important to consider that, especially when you pick up a book. So if you're going to read outside of the genre that you like to read, don't judge a book based on your genre preferences. You've got to consider the genre that you're reading because it might be a fantastic women's fiction book, but it's going to be a horrible cozy mystery. So if you're judging it and you're going to review it based on that, you'll be very disappointed. And also be careful when you get feedback, that you're getting feedback from people Mm -hmm. who are readers of your genre. Classic example I've shared on the show before from Steve Lobby, and somebody pitched him this really great military science fiction book and he was jazzed he got three chapters and he's like send me the finished manuscript when you get it finished and this author had gone and gotten feedback and he got feedback from a bunch of romance authors who didn't think his book was very good because it didn't fit their genre expectations and he ended up revising it and sending it to Stephen. it was worse because he was getting feedback from the wrong people And so you have to, this is true with picking an editor, uh, but it's really true with picking beta readers because beta readers lack the training to be able to understand genre differences. They just know what they like and what they don't like. And so if you're getting them responding to things that they don't like, the things that they don't like, they're like 20 pages of a nuclear bomb. That's so boring. Oh my gosh, take that out. And it's true. It is boring for them. (laughs) But if they're not your target reader, that feedback can be poisonous to the success of your book. I always recommend, whether it's a critique partner or critique group or beta readers, to try to find as many people as possible who are actually active in the publishing industry. Because like I said, I don't read specific genres, but if someone were to ask me to beta read a mystery for them, I know enough that I'm not going to try to impose different genre expectations on that. And it it needs to be someone, like I said, actively in it, because someone who retired from publishing 20 years ago, things have changed quite a bit since then. So they may know what worked great 20 years ago may not be perfect for today's market and audiences. Exactly. I want to talk about one common belief that a lot of authors have, because they look at the genres, and none of these genres fit my book. And so instead of adapting their book to fit the genre so that they're writing the kind of book that people already want to read, they're like, I'm going to invent a brand new genre all on my own. I'm going to create a new genre that doesn't exist and my book will be number one in this new genre of no other books. So what would you say to an author who's thinking that? The first thing you have to ask them is, where's the audience and who is the audience? Because if they can't identify it, then the next step is to try to help them realize that if they can't identify where these readers are, then they can't sell that non-existent audience the books. It's really difficult to create a genre if you're not sure who to target, if you're not sure where to find these readers, if you're peddling your wares downtown and you don't know where the shoppers are, you're going to waste hours just walking around downtown. You find out, well, oh, they're another block over. So when you're starting to look at, well, I want to create this new genre Generally, my guidance is always to try to find the genre that it's most similar to and follow those guidelines. And most genres are planted the same way most churches are planted, at least here in the States nowadays. 
they're not planning by somebody to be like, I'm going to go plant a church. They're planning because there's a church split, right? It's like first Baptist has a fight and now there's first Baptist and there's second Baptist. And so a, a, a pre-existing community realized they didn't fit in where they were. And so they all leave together and they start a church. And so it's not one guy, one pastor in his living room with three people starting a church. It's a hundred people leaving this other church. And now they've got a church and on the first Sunday, there's a hundred people there. And that's how a lot of genres start. Cause they're like, you know, these, these romances, they're too clean. I want something that's more spicy, more erotic, more vampires. And so a big group of them all leave all at the same time. And now vampire romance is a thing. And the People who don't like that stuff are like, good riddance. <laughs> we, we didn't like your books anyway. And mm-hmm. it's not always this hostile. I don't, I don't, I don't mean it in this way because sometimes people just get a new passion and they all leave together. But what a lot of authors do is they just go out in the wilderness all by themselves and they're shouting and there's no one around here. And they, really what happened is they just started writing a book and they like it and they don't want to change it to fit into a genre. And that's not how you create a new genre. Amazon is full of hundreds of thousands of authors who've done the same thing. And if you look at the numbers, the average, uh, I believe it's the average annual income for authors on Amazon is about $1,000. So if you want to do it your own way and you want to create your own genre, absolutely do whatever you want. But if you want to lean more towards the making a little more money, reaching a larger audience, getting your message out to more people, then definitely, yeah, go find one of those speculative fiction subgenres and see which one you match up with the best. And you have to earn the right. You're not going to create a new genre with your first book. Typically, you have to have earned the skills, learning how to write for an audience so that if you do want to break out and make your own thing, You've at least at least mastered the fundamentals. You know how to put together a good scene. You know how to make compelling characters. You know how to make dialogue interesting. You, you know how to pace the novel and do the plotting. Like there's a lot of kind of fundamentals of good writing that you have to have already mastered. And then once you master those, it's like a chef, right? You've gotten good at all the fundamentals of being a chef. You want to create a new cuisine or create a new dish. Okay, you've earned the right to be able to do that. Whereas somebody just in their kitchen randomly throwing ingredients together. You're not going to create a new dish that way. You're much more likely to create a monstrosity. Trust me, I know. (laughs) (laughs) It really goes hand in hand with that saying that it's a lot easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. And if you're Karen Kingsbury and you decide that you want to throw a speculative element into one of your stories, you might annoy a lot of your readers But her fan base is so big, they're going to forgive her. Most of them will say, okay, well, that one was weird, but I'm still going to read your next book because we have a relationship. I know you. I trust you. I'll forgive you for this (laughs) genre break, and I'm going to try it again. But if you're new and you're saying, hey, you don't know anything about me. I want your permission to create this. It's a hard sell. Well said, well said. Karen Beery, where can people find out more about you? Best place is going to be on my website, which is KarenBeery.com. And that is K-A-R-I-N-B-E-E-R-Y, KarenBeery.com. But you can also find me on Facebook at Author Karen Beery. And I'm also on MeWe, Instagram, and Twitter at Karen Beery. We will have links to all of those places in the show notes. Karen Beery, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. 